0: Welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up all on its own. And this week, you may as well throw that description of our show out the fucking window, because we're doing something brand new, never-before-seen, first-try, first-take exciting. And what that is, it's not really an often forgotten installment in a franchise because it came out like two weeks ago. What we are talking about is dr sleep so we hope that everybody listening came with us to the theatrical experience and before i forget i may as well say that i'm one of your hosts Corey, and i'm your other host liam and we're the two guys that told you last week when we were talking about tron legacy that you should go to the theater and see this movie dr sleep which is a 2019 film if you hadn't figured that out directed by mike flanagan And Mike Flanagan is somebody that you may also know for Gerald's Game, which is a a different uh, Stephen King adaptation that was on Netflix, as well as The Haunting of Hill House from last year, which was also on Netflix. And everybody's favorite film, Ouija Origin of Evil. Everybody remember that one? William, you remember that? I do, yeah. It's
1: it's great, actually. It's really good. Oh, is it? Am I the bad guy for goofing on this? Yeah, and it's it's much better than the first one. It's sort of a the opposite of our show. It's the inverse where the first one is really, really forgettable and bad. And the second one is like gangbusters and is
0: going to be remembered 10 years from now, I think. Oh, that's cool. Well, (laughs) speaking of movies that might end up being remembered 10 years from now, Dr. Sleep, the thing he did this year. It's based on a Stephen King novel from 2013, which is something that I'm learning right now is that that's how new that book is. And that's blowing my mind. And um, it stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, Alexandra Esso, Carl Lumbly, Zan McLaren, Bruce Greenwood, Emily Allen Lind, and some other people. If I sit here, oh, and I want to give Cliff Curtis his due because he is a somewhat important role in this movie. I'm not going to list everybody though. I got a bad habit of trying to list every actor in a movie. We'll get to them as they come up. I don't want to say that it's not important because, like you know, a lot of people work hard on these movies. So, like, I'm just looking at a cast list. I'm just reading names. I don't know what you offer me, people. This is a pretty, <laughs> this is a pretty run and gun production we got going over here. And um, we're not doing
1: anything you yourself couldn't do at home.
0: Yeah, you know, the only thing that we're providing you is uh, commentary that you may or may not be interested in. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know, Doctor Sleep, both the book and the movie, um, are a sequel to The Shining which is both a 1977 Stephen King novel of the same name and perhaps the much better-known 1980 film adaptation directed by Stanley Kubrick, A Man Who Needs No Introduction, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, two actors who need no introduction. And um, we may as well dive right into it here. Liam, what is your previous experience with The Shining? I guess now is a franchise, which feels like a weird thing to say, but, you know, the books, the movie... Um, the new book and everything leading up to this film what do you got
1: well uh, my only experience with The Shining was the movie Ready Player One from last no I'm just kidding
0: oh my uh, god my,
1: <laughs> my experience with The Shining is uh, I mean pretty much all of it I think you know I've seen the original movie quite a few times I've read the book I've read Dr. Sleep I have seen Ready Player One I've seen uh, the Stephen King executive produced TV miniseries, The Shining, that came out in the late 90s oh, as sort of no a, way. Uh, a, uh, a do-over after the Kubrick version because Stephen King is sort of famously not down with Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining and he wanted to do one that was more faithful. And that came out on TV in the late 90s. I've seen that one. I've seen most of Mike Flanagan's work, so I'm coming into it with that in mind. I think he's a great director. Stephen King is, uh, you know, probably my favorite author. I like Stanley Kubrick's movies, and I like the Stanley Kubrick movie, The Shining. You know, so I was I was really, really, really excited for this movie, actually. Um, probably my most anticipated of the year.
0: That's awesome, man. And so, um, I guess for anybody who hasn't read them, because I haven't either... Is it possible to give, like, a brief sense of what the novels are like? And if that's too broad a question, I guess what I mean is, like, are they straight up just, like, horror novels, like, trying to scare you? Or do they have more of just, like, an ominous kind of thing going on? Or, like, how it, like, feels when you're reading it, I guess is kind of what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, well, it doesn't feel the way The Shining from 1980 makes you feel. I would much more readily compare it to how... This film, Doctor Sleep, made me feel. Stephen King books um, have a really large emphasis placed on the characters. The premise is something that hooks you in, but that's all it really is—is is a hook. And then it's the characters that flow you through the story. You know, a lot of Stephen King's ideas are like shower ideas that you that you come up with at 7 a.m. when you're when you're washing your hair. Well, like I don't come up with them because they're they're really
0: great and. It's it's his well, thing. Leo, but there's, there's yeah. one of them was Sewer Clown. So, like, they don't all sound great on paper, and then he's able to write a good book out of it. But I want you to believe in yourself. I totally think you can come up with Sewer Clown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it, you know, it's not a very... Uh densely plotted book, you know, it has a sort of neat construction of going back and forth in time, but really the heart of that book and the movie is just getting into the heads of the characters and, um, and feeling like you have a relationship with them. And The Shining book and Doctor Sleep both really, really do that. And I think that's why Stephen King was disappointed in Stanley Kubrick's version because it went to the complete opposite side of the spectrum in regards to horror the horror wasn't stemming out of um supernatural things being imposed onto what we understand to be natural characters it's a lot more surrealist and um overtly unsettling from the very beginning you know stephen king's um most common critique with the shining film is that jack nicholson seems crazy from the beginning and he's not a dude struggling with alcoholism who is bit by bit getting broken down by the supernatural forces in that hotel. You know, in in Stanley Kubrick's movie, um, it's pretty evident from the very beginning that stuff is going to go south. And then the film is just all about um, those supernatural moments smacking you in the face one by one, sort of, regardless of the characters. I don't think that's a very character-driven movie. Whereas I think Stephen King's books and this movie is a lot more character based. So the novels are very straightforward. Um, They have pretty uh, basic premises and the joy is just getting involved with these characters and getting emotionally attached to them and following them along this sort of supernatural journey.
0: Is is that what drew you to his books initially? Because I don't know how long you've been reading them. I'm assuming as far as I've known, it's always struck me as you've been reading his books for a long time, but... Is that what draws you in? That it is more of like a character study. It is what it is what draws me in. It's what well it's what keeps me coming
1: back to it. You know, I started reading Stephen King when I was a young kid, and that's because they had cool premises like girl gets blood dumped on her at prom, or like cell phones are killing people. But then when you when I read these books, it was the characters that kept me there, and it's the characters who still pop into my mind when I think of his books. I don't think of um, significant set pieces or action moments i kind of just think about paragraphs of um internal dialogue in in certain characters heads and those are the people that stick with me so that's certainly what keeps me coming back and it's um why i was so excited for the film adaptation of this book to come out once i heard mike flanagan was at the was at the helm of it because he's done movies um over the last few years that really seem to be concerned with the characters first and having the horror stem from seeing uh, horrible things happen to people you're attached to. The haunting of Hill house does that sort of thing. Gerald's game does that sort of thing. And so I think he's a perfect, perfect fit for Stephen King books. And I couldn't really imagine a better person than him to do this. And, uh, I was really excited to see how he pulled it off, especially in relation to Stanley Kubrick's movie, because I understood that he wanted to base the movie off of Stephen King's sequel. He loves Stephen King, but he also wanted to make it a sequel to the original film, which Stephen King didn't do at all with the novel of Dr. Sleep. He, I think he writes... um an afterword or, or a foreword in that book where he says, I'm not, this isn't a sequel to The Shining, uh, the movie. It's, it's a sequel to my book entirely. Stanley Kubrick's universe doesn't exist here. Whereas Mike Flanagan, you know, it being uh, kind of the boldest, one of the boldest directors, I think working today with his adaptations of The Haunting of Hill House and Gerald's Game, which is sort of an unfilmable book that has two characters in one room, I think it was really, really cool of him to try to pull this off. And so there's a lot going on here. And uh, I would love to hear what you think about it as someone who, who doesn't have these attachments to the books and, and your experience with The Shining and, and eventually this movie. I'd love to hear it.
0: Yeah, well, before I get into me, I just had I have one more thing I wanted to ask just sort of out of curiosity, which is just yeah. so there's so many Stephen King adaptations. There's like a billion Stephen King adaptations. Do you have a favorite, and what is it?
1: Mm, what a great question. I know, because um,
0: there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from here.
1: Yeah. Stand By Me is my favorite Stephen King adaptation, Um, because I think that's one that totally um pays respects to the characters. And that book, you know, it's sort of a cheat, because if you're, Adapting that that novella, it's a short story. Um, that's really all you have to work with. It's not a horror story at all. It's just about four kids who go into the woods to see a dead body. Um, so it makes for a really filmable book. But I, I really love uh, the Stephen King books and movies that, that sort of stay true to that. So Stand By Me is one of them. I think Carrie... Uh, Brian De Palma's Carrie does a similar thing where it really just spends a lot of time with the girl and then the horror pays off at the end because you've spent so much time with the girl. Misery does a similar thing. The Mist does a similar thing. So he has a, re- a lot of really great movies based on his work, um, but he also has a lot of bad stuff based <laughs> on his work and just stuff that doesn't that doesn't sit right with me even though it's uh, it might not be bad. And so I was I was also ready for this one to not blow me away because it's it's a tough it's a really tough thing to do to sort of to uh convey the heart that he has on paper, you know, because he's he's specifically writing on paper and he's written some screenplays and even directed a movie and that stuff isn't in there. So his, uh, his forte is the written word and um, I don't think I don't think he's a god where anything he touches turns to gold. so I was uh, I, I was nervous about this one, but I was excited.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you're such a Stephen King aficionado because I think it'll make a really interesting counterpoint to me who I'm not not an aficionado in the way that I think that his work is bad. I just I'm not familiar, right? My parents read a ton of Stephen King. My dad in particular reads like an extreme amount of Stephen King. He's read like, I don't want to say most Stephen King because I know that there's a ridiculous amount of Stephen King out there, but uh, my dad's read a ton of Stephen King. Last time we went to a bookstore together, the book that he bought was by Stephen King. Um, My mom has also read a good amount of Stephen King. We got some of that kicking around downstairs. So, for something that was so present in the lives of my parents, it's probably weird that I've never read a Stephen King book. I haven't seen a lot of the Stephen King adaptations either. Hmm. So, I was a bit of a blank slate, except for the fact that I am, like, woefully in love with The Shining, the movie. Um, And it's interesting because I was really, 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 really late to The Shining party, because growing up... I didn't like watching horror movies and even though I increasingly became somebody who was like interested in film and like wanted to watch like the older classic stuff by folks who are considered master filmmakers, but I wouldn't really seek out horror stuff because I was pretty convinced that it was something I didn't like. So it took me a really long time to get around to watching the shining. That said, I eventually watched the shining and The Shining, for me, is like a... The Shining is like a perfect movie, pretty much. Um, yeah. and, and my favorite yeah. thing about it, as someone who hasn't read the book, is that it goes the other way. Is that it? it's very atmospheric, and it's very moody, and it's very tone-driven, and it's very sparse, and it's very slow. Um, And I don't mind not feeling as though it is super about these people as people and they're more evocative of like forces and things and it's not necessarily like oh yeah this is a guy this is a guy who has like alcohol problems and like appears to probably abuse his wife because his wife really seems like she doesn't want to say anything to upset him and also he dislocated his kid's shoulder for no reason so it's not really about that but it's about watching somebody sort of unspool and become undone and the consequence that has on people around them and it's really evocative because the performances get very um, primal almost and very like base but in a good way um, and it's also just like really incredibly shot it's like the peak of like Kubrick ass <laughs> cinematography and um, it leaves so much unspoken and unshown while still having A lot of really really cool really abstract imagery in it um and it really it just coalesces into a really great mood piece and just a really incredible example of filmmaking and i'm not surprised to see that the book dr sleep is getting a film adaptation because we're kind of in like a mini stephen king renaissance again and that's because of how successful it was um, in 2017, I guess it's worth noting that in the last, like, I'd say since, like, 2016 is when I started, like, watching horror properly um, and, like, actively seeking it out. So, the first movie I ever reviewed that got, like, a published review in, like, a physical thing you could hold was for It in 2017, so... That's a that's my one sort of touchstone with Stephen King, is that. But um, it's, well, it, what
1: about what about other adaptations of his work? Stuff that people might not, um, you know, always reference as a Stephen King book because it's taken on a life of its own as a movie. Have you seen stuff like that? I don't think so. Uh, I would need an know, example. Stand by Me, Carrie, Shawshank Redemption. Are you just are you trying to embarrass
0: me? <laughs> Green Mile, no, no, <laughs> yeah. and uh, like I like and no te- all of those. Um, huh. Okay, okay. It, like I mean it when I say Stephen King, as a concept, like his work, in the most abstract sense, was like absent from my yeah. upbringing. <laughs>
1: like yeah, at this point, it just sounds like you were avoiding like anything. Well, and it's weird because it's like him, you know? I
0: really love Brian De Palma, never seen Carrie. Like it's weird. Is Christine a Stephen King book? Yeah, that's... Yeah, John Carpenter, Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. love John Carpenter. Haven't seen Christine. That's one of the ones I haven't seen yet. Haven't seen Maximum Overdrive, even though I'm pretty sure like an ATM kills somebody in that or something. Oh, yeah. And a vending machine. (laughs) Yeah, and I want to see that because it sounds insane, but just, yeah. So Stephen King is just a bit of a cultural void for me. Um, Pretty much up until it 2017 except I knew about the old it miniseries because of Tim Curry
1: right did your mom or dad ever try to influence you did that impact you at all that they were reading that stuff
0: no and I will say that I'm pretty sure it's more my dad who's like the big 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 Stephen King guy my mom has a lot I think the author I probably most associate with my mom is like Dean Koontz and not Stephen King but for my dad it's definitely I like him too for my dad it's definitely Stephen King and um it's probably I just don't think it was something I was aware of um and I don't remember he was like reading
1: it in secret
0: he might have been I don't know or maybe he just read more of it when he was younger and then like I don't know didn't have time to read for a while I don't want to speculate too much His dad's gonna, gonna be offended he's gonna listen to this and be like what the fuck are they talking about we needed
1: we need to get your dad as a guest on our next Stephen King episode. Dude, don't
0: even don't even joke, cause like my I'm not joking. St- my stepmom has been like on me, like, yo, I wanna be on your show. So if we go actually dad's gonna be on the show first, she's gonna be so upset. That's true. But yeah, so that's why I was I was really intrigued by Doctor Sleep, knowing that it probably only got made because of how much money it made at least now right like it probably only got that treatment now because there apparently is a hunger for stephen king adaptations but for every it you get you also get a dark tower which no one even remembers happened that's what that's called right with the with matthew mcconaughey and idris elba yeah yeah okay yeah. that's what that was <laughs> i can't even remember confidently enough what the yeah. movie was called
1: yeah that's a they made another one for sure already two years out that is they made another one material
0: totally um you know i was super excited and i didn't see the trailer for doctor sleep or anything i went in cold uh which i think was for the best um but i want to pass it over to resident stephen king expert liam for what you thought about doctor sleep the film
1: i loved this movie man i loved it so so much i uh I just kept being amazed as the movie went on that it seems like the perfect adaptation of a book. You know, that's so, so hard to do. Even when you see a movie that you really love, stuff jumps out at you that that had to be condensed from the book. Characters had to be combined. Stuff had to change settings. You know, scenes had to be taken out or just referenced in passing. We saw all that stuff with it earlier this year. Um, with Pet Cemetery earlier this oh, year yeah, as well. Oh yeah, I saw that too, and I don't even remember hey, that happened. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, and I'm, I'm an idiot. Just for the record, Pet Cemetery is my favorite uh, Stephen King movie, the original one. I love that movie. It's
0: not Stand by Me.
1: It's my favorite Stephen <laughs> King horror movie. How okay. About that? Um, and this movie, it just kept going on, and I was thinking, this is exactly how I imagined the book in my head. These characters are so perfectly cast that now when I remember reading the book and I think back to the images I pictured, as I was reading it, they're now filled in with the actors Man, that's in this so movie,
0: cool. <laughs>
1: and in almost every single case. And we were getting to scenes, and um, as the scene would start, I would I would go, "Oh, hey, I remember, I remember this in the book," because I didn't study the book before I watched this, so it still it was in my brain somewhere. But I wasn't saying, "Okay, I'm waiting for this scene to happen now." I didn't know, but when a scene would start, it would. It would trigger my memory and then the scene would play out exactly how I imagined it in the book. It was it was really the coolest, coolest feeling. And so that was that was the thing that really got me going to begin with, where I was just having an absolute blast. And what really sold me on this movie was by the end of it, how well I felt it pulled off being a adaptation of Dr. Sleep and a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I thought that Mike Flanagan really, really pulled off a magic trick here that has its foot in, you know, both ends of the spectrum. He's like doing the splits on the spectrum to make this movie, and I think that he remains standing by the end of it. I was really just blown away with almost everything in this movie and um it was such a satisfying conclusion to this sort of franchise this universe if that's what you want to call it because dr sleep was a book i really dug but i wasn't anticipating the movie in the same way i was anticipating you know the remake of pet cemetery that came out earlier this year because i love the pet cemetery book and i love the pet cemetery movie and so i was excited for that um and I was hoping that the movie did the story justice because I think it's a great story. But this this movie, I was I was I thought it would be cool to see this book recreated visually, this this thing that existed in my brain. But it wasn't it wasn't a book that I um, was championing and thinking about very often. And so I was kind of just looking to be along for the ride of this movie. And by the end of it, I felt that this is not just as good of an adaptation of the Dr. Sleep book as it can be, because that is hardly even a part of the the matter. You know, this isn't just trying to be an adaptation of the book. I think this is as perfect a conclusion or installment or whatever it is. I don't know if this is going to get a sequel. It's as a perfect an installment as a film can be to a story and a movie that is now 40 years old and has to also reconcile with the fact that Stephen King doesn't like that original movie. And so I think I think this movie makes amends for Stanley Kubrick's Shining without undercutting it. I think it's amazing that both these movies now exist side by side, and I think it is absolutely incredible that uh, this film exists, and I really couldn't be happier with it.
0: I'm so happy to hear you so excited, especially because I think that's probably the most excited about a movie you've been on this show. (laughs) Uh, Erebud was up there, bro. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm not... As I'm not on the level you're on, but I really did like it a lot. I agree with a lot of what you've said. I think the biggest thing to really hammer home here is, uh, this movie really threads the needle between being a sequel to the shining, the film. And as far as I can tell, as someone who hasn't read them, to be fair, doing something different enough that it also speaks to Stephen King the writer and Stephen King's work in book form. Um, It does a lot of interesting things while still managing to feel distinct from the shining. Uh, It has different goals and it manages to do a lot of visual callbacks or like cinematic callbacks in terms of just like how some shots look and how the camera moves through them and the way things are framed uh, that clearly speak to a Kubrick influence But it's also able to, I guess, as we've established, have the character driven angle that The Shining lacks for so many people that manages to make it a different thing entirely. And it manages also, I think, mostly to not over explain itself and not over explain the things about The Shining that are interesting and that are interesting because they remain unexplained. We can get into that after. I'm just going to say it now. We're spoiling the fuck out of this movie, y'all. Like, if you haven't seen it, leave now. Like, we've given you, like, 30 minutes to get out of here, and you're still here. Um, But uh, I think the first thing I want to ask is, does the movie differ from the book very much? Not until
1: the end. Once we get into the climax at the Overlook Hotel, shortly before that climax, as we're setting up for it, is when it starts to differ. And that's when it starts to really juggle the material from the movie, as well as trying to follow through with all the stuff that has come before in this movie that is from the book. But right up until maybe the two-hour mark, this is pretty much the book exactly.
0: And so then it doesn't seem like there's any glaring omissions then either, because I know a big problem with a lot of adaptations, period. But I think Stephen King adaptations specifically have a bit of a checkered past, not necessarily with omissions, but like outright changes. I think the Pet Cemetery from earlier this year is a great example of you changed like the one most important thing about the book. So the movie's different now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this, this movie doesn't,
1: doesn't quite do that. You know, obviously there's stuff that's left out that just comes down to, uh, you don't you don't have enough time, right? A two hour movie, two and a half hour movie versus a book that takes 20 hours to read or something. You're going to have, you're going to have relationships and backstories that aren't as um, as deep as they are in a book. And, you know, I'm never looking to a movie adaptation to include as much as they can, but I am looking to a movie adaptation to make what is on screen as seamless as possible and have me not notice that anything is left out, whether that be a plot point or a character or a backstory, anything like that. And, and I didn't get any of that in this movie, you know, whatever was left out of um, whatever was left out of the movie because it couldn't fit. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't really tell you what it is and um, whatever I could tell you, it doesn't matter to me that it's not here because the movie doesn't feel deflated or like it, like it's, it's missing anything. This movie feels really full it's uh all killer and no filler to me
0: and i guess we'll we'll get to the ending later i don't want to talk about the ending first and then work backwards but because i know the shining one of the big things with it is that the ending in the movie is so different is it a radical departure at the end of dr sleep or is it just like a couple changes here and there um is is the ending
1: of dr sleep radically different from the book you're asking yeah dr sleep
0: yeah um Yes, it is. Well, Uh, let's get to that after then because it's the end, but I was just curious. Yeah. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is conveniently also like the second thing the movie does. This movie makes the very bold decision to have flashbacks to The Shining and also new material with those characters in the 1980s that is recreated with new actors Reprising those roles, which is a huge risk to take, a massive risk to take, because you risk, in the eyes of fans, both tainting a legacy on the one hand of the movie and those initial performances, and also just making the additional material that we now have feel cheap. And I'm prepared to say that I think my favorite part of this movie is the flashbacks. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Because hey, that's, that's like your stuff. They're so good, and I want to get the names of these actors because they deserve so much praise for what they yeah. managed to do
1: here. I can tell you who they are, man. I, I know their faces. Um, we got Alex Esso is playing Wendy. She's a horror actress who's been in a couple genre films in the last Starry couple years. years. Right? Starry Eyes, yeah, she's great in Starry Eyes. She's in a movie called Midnighters, and I think she'll just be in more and more stuff. She's she's really great. And then Jack Nicholson, we have Henry Thomas, otherwise known as the boy from E.T. And also, no way! Yeah. What? Oh yeah, dude, dude Mike shit. Flanagan Mike Flanagan like brought him uh, out of retirement I you know, um, like he's in Gerald's Game from 2017 <laughs> in probably the most difficult performance in that movie besides the the, the, the lead, he's in that movie and he's killing it and I, that was my reintroduction to him a couple years ago and then he's the dad in Haunting of Hill House, the series that came oh out last year, so God. he just has hours and hours of screen time and so he's a pretty familiar face to me at this point and he's a fantastic <laughs> actor and when I saw him as Jack I, I didn't know that he was going to be in this movie and I didn't know that that was going to be his role and I thought it was a perfect perfect choice I, I loved I loved both of them man I thought they were you know in, in the same way I said the casting for the original Dr. Sleep characters was was perfect. I I also think that you couldn't have found better actors to fill in these roles from 30 years ago um, and not make them feel like impressions, but also make them line up with what we've seen 30 years ago. I think it was the best way to go. And I think regardless of how they approached that material, it's a risk because... It was a risk for Stephen King to write a sequel to The Shining 30 years later. And it was a risk for him to start the book with scenes of those characters back then. You know, we, we get a scene of Wendy and um, and Danny when Danny is still a kid right at the beginning of the movie. And, and that's in the book. And, and that's risky to do. And so if the movie wasn't going to cut that stuff out, it, it had to include it somehow. And if you're not going to recast them, then what are you going to do Digitally? Uh, that's the thing
0: right and Shelley we, Duvall and that's uh, that's we as just big of a risk this I think Tron, you know and yeah it's the same thing which is like that technology's not there yet that would also have felt wildly disrespectful I think if yeah. it was just like we're just going to recreate them but there's just something so remarkable about what these actors including uh, Roger Dale Floyd who is our young Danny in this movie um, are able yeah. to bring back to the surface in terms of the very little things, like the nuances of the performances in the original movie, like it's helpful because so Alex Esso doesn't look 100% like Shelley Duvall, right? She looks a lot like Shelley Duvall, but it's not 100% because they're not twins. However, the way she carries herself and like the way she moves and the way she sounds and the way she speaks to Danny um, and the sort of desperation that you get in the beginning when Danny had walked off and she like finds him again. It feels so much like Shelly Duval's Wendy that you just buy it, right? Completely. The same thing with um Henry Thomas's Jack, who's it's important to note that like these aren't impressions of these actors, right? Like Henry Thomas isn't here doing a Jack Nicholson he kind like he is because he's playing a character played by Jack Nicholson, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like he's playing Jack Torrance as Mm -hmm. the bartender Lloyd. And I think we see him a hundred percent in profile and even seeing half of his face. He's able to carry not just the, the minor details of the performance from Jack Nicholson, but also the minor details of the character of the bartender. And it's really astounding. It's, it's, remarkable stuff and then roger dale floyd who admittedly is not given as much to do in terms of reenacting the original movie he's given a lot of the sort of connective tissue that helps inform ewan mcgregor's version of dan um like talking with uh with halloran and stuff like that and he's great with that and he's great when he has that confrontation in the bathroom at the beginning and he does he carries off danny lloyd's original kind of like almost vacantness sometimes and like the expression on his face and the way he's talking they're all fantastic and the recreations themselves are like 99 percent accurate which is incredible
1: um and and you watched the shining the same day you watched watched this one right i
0: re-watched the shining and then like four hours later i saw doctor sleep
1: yeah yeah so So tell it you know better than i do in this case they're
0: very 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 close um i think there's a chance that maybe some of the overlook hotel itself was maybe digitally done like some of it feels a bit different but in terms of like camera angles and movement when they're following danny on the tricycle and things like that or just how the place looks it's it's like 99 percent. you would have to nitpick it really hard and I know that's something people are going to do because people have been nitpicking The Shining since it came out. There's a lot of, like, conspiracies around it and shit for some reason.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, have you have you seen
0: the movie Room 237? I watched a video about it, and that movie sounds like it was made by a bunch of fucking crazy people.
1: <laughs> it is, it's wild, yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know if the director is crazy or if he just decided to put a light on these crazy people, but it is, a. Uh, it is a beast of a movie.
0: Yeah, but I just I really wanted to try to spotlight early on the the achievement that is those flashbacks and that connected material. Oh my god, we forgot Scatman Crothers. We right? forgot Carl Lumbly, and yeah. for that we should be horribly punished. I think I forgot just because he recurs throughout the rest of the movie. Um, uh, so I was kind of prepared to talk about him after because he is like interactions with ewan mcgregor right but he's also doing like a picture perfect note perfect performance and again he's not impersonating scatman crothers <laughs> he is embodying dick halloran and it's really remarkable and he does that in the beginning and he does it in the middle and he does it near the end and it never feels like it's slipping up again there's very minor things i would i would take like issue with but it's not even worth it you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and that's as good a segue as any to get us to what this movie ends up being about which is danny torrance is a grown man who is played by ewan mcgregor who needs no introduction and um we get danny a good 35 ish years later in his life and he has learned a means with which to like cope with what he has realized is the shining. And, um, the fact that the shining is something that attracts people that feed off of it, that like imbues them with like, not immortality, but like may as well be as long as they're able to like, they, they like harvest kids who have shining and they like eat the shining. Um, and they like eat fear, (laughs) And you like it literally manifests in like a smoke form. And um he's understood how to combat that. And the Overlook Hotel is one of those things. That's the explainer behind that is that some of times it's people, it can also be places. So the um hallucinations from the original film is uh the shining that Danny has acting up, but also the hotel attempting to consume that. And he also struggles with alcoholism and just trying to like get his shit back together and um he like hops town and ends up meeting a guy named billy who is played by cliff curtis who basically sets him up with a gig and sets him up in aa and um they just have like a nice bond but in uh conversations with uh dick halloran who can appear from beyond the grave because they both have the shining and he appears like physically in scenes and they talk to one another uh, there's another g- little girl whose name is Abra, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that's uh that's some Stephen King know, ass shit,
1: dude. That's that Stephen King for you, dude. Sometimes he just swings for the fences. Dude wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, yeah, yeah. it took me a while to warm up to that in the book, <laughs> but uh, luckily I was already warmed up to it. Come this movie.
0: Yeah, and she has like The Shining to like an insane degree, and um, this group. Led by, led by Rose the Hat, who is played by Rebecca Ferguson, a group called the True Knot, um, is trying to catch her because they're like, whoa, that's some shit. And they're sort of at slim Pickens at this point. <laughs> um, we uh, we see them harvest a little girl in the beginning and then uh, Andy, who is played by Emily Allen Lind and then nobody else, basically, except for Baseball Kid, who we'll get to. And... uh. uh yeah. So then it becomes trying to protect Abra from that group. And Dan is kind of able to get a bit of a find new value in his life and get a bit of a, a rebirth going that he feels like he has value because he's able to protect and enlighten this person. And instead of going through it chronologically, I just want to open the floor to like what sequences or things about the movie stick out to you most. Like, what do you want to most talk about, especially because you were so excited about the whole thing?
1: Well, hey, I think we're going to, uh, as we talk about the ending and our final thoughts, um, I think I'll be able to make it clear that I think this movie pulls off uh, the big things that it's wrestling with so, so well, being a sequel to The Shining and an adaptation of the book and really uh, paying a lot of attention to its characters and making sure there's emotion in every scene. I think the movie does a great job of all those things, but beyond all that i just think that mike flanagan has a great eye for mm-hmm. constructing scenes that feel unique and feel like something i haven't seen before even though the substance is stuff i've seen before you know stephen king he has that he has that same mindset where he can be describing over and over again you know a, an alcoholic character who wants to be a writer I think he has a couple of those in his books but every time it feels it feels different and in this movie Mike Flanagan he does stuff like that you know one of these scenes that jumps out to me is the baseball boys murder where the true knot abducts him and uh, tortures him so what we have there is we have Jacob Tremblay uh, great actor. The homie. <laughs> the homie. Been the homie for four years, ever since Room. And, uh, Book and of knew Henry. His man for great things, and Book of Henry. Oh my <laughs> God. I love this kid. I'll, I'll watch anything he touches. And so when he showed up, I, I was just once again affirmed that Mike Flanagan knows what he's doing in, in terms of casting people. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we have Jacob Tremblay just giving the performance of his life, really. The dude is getting, harrowing. It's harrowing, dude. He's getting tortured, and we've seen people tortured before, and I've even seen kids tortured before, dude. But this felt <laughs> so, so real. And um, I could feel the True Knots' disregard for human life in this scene because they themselves want to keep living. You know, that's what it comes down to with these characters is that um all they want to do is they want to keep living like life is their drug and, and that's all they want and while in a lot of the movie i don't think the true knot is very threatening particularly because abra is so powerful this is the scene um just because of the way it's constructed and the things they're doing to this kid and the way he's reacting where i really understand where these characters are coming from and i understand how scary they are and then and the follow up to that where i just think the movie really hits home another small thing that i loved is when we have Danny and Billy digging up the body and they get to where his face is and they just start vomiting and coughing and reacting to the fact that they found a dead body and it felt a dead so kid. a dead kid and it felt so so real to me i've seen people dig up bodies before in movies but and never really caveat. Thought- <laughs> I've never really thought of it like this before, dude. The fact that digging up a dead body would suck—not only in that it's like sad and unsettling, but it's going to be disgusting. This kid has been rotting underground for a few days, and I absolutely felt it. And it's stuff like that where the film just decides to take an extra minute that maybe another film wouldn't take to show these characters reacting to something horrific. And, and we just—we have stuff like that all throughout the movie, and. Um, I think that's the stuff that's that's going to stick with me and um, make this movie something that I want to revisit something that I respect as well as love you know
0: yeah it's something there's something deeply human about it and about the way the human characters are represented while simultaneously feeling as supernatural as it is it manages mm-hmm. to toe that line a really particular way. You get great juxtaposition of those things, I think, especially in the scene with uh, Jacob Tremblay, because their lack of reaction juxtaposed with his, like, abject terror and pain is really striking. Um, I think the other thing that really elevates a lot of this movie, but especially those, is um, the way it looks. And it feels so stupid to just say, oh, it's the way it looks, but especially at night, light diffuses in a very particular way. And it feels like there's always like some sort of level of ambient fog. And there's just something not quite normal about how it looks that gives it like a vaguely otherworldly quality that adds to the fact that what you're seeing is unsettling. But it's even just as simple as when they pull up to wherever that body was buried like headlights. And this happens in the woods too, with the true, knot, headlights go on forever and their beams. Right. And you can just see them diffuse through the air. And there's this just aura around everything. That's very like off putting, but it's also, it feels visually unique and it manages to juxtapose that with things that feel like direct callbacks to the shining. Obviously there's a lot of framing there's a lot of symmetrical framing and there's a lot of framing in hallways right and moving through hallways because that's a pretty iconic thing about the shining um the specific way in which like you'll have a character center frame in the symmetrical space um but there's also things that are a bit more subtle like um he uh dan torrance ends up working at like a hospice which is where he ends up picking up the doctor's sleep nickname, which ultimately doesn't play that much into the overall plot of the movie. Yeah, it's like one line. Kudos yeah. to this movie for sticking to that title. For keeping, yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know if you noticed this. I probably noticed it because I saw The Shining earlier that day. But the way the office that they're in is framed, and the way it looks, like even like down to the color of the walls, the way it's shot, the way they're sitting at these chairs in this desk. It is very, very, very similar to how Stuart Ullman's office is shot when Jack Torrance is getting his job. Yeah, it's yeah, I did notice that. Yeah. Um, it's extremely close. And it's important that the movie is able to call back to The Shining in a way that's very direct that doesn't feel direct, you know? Because there's yeah. a couple things near the end where I think it does get too direct, and it it that's a bummer, but it's not enough to take away from the overall experience of it. How did you feel about um, our two? What I'm going to describe as our two leads, for now, which by which I mean Ewan McGregor and Kylie Kern playing Abra. How did you like them, both individually and together?
1: Loved them, dude. I loved them, and um, I didn't have anything to go off of for either of them. Ewan McGregor is someone you said. Uh, Needs no introduction. Um, but it got, it got me thinking that uh, one, I think whenever we give an introduction to someone on this show, they're going to feel offended because that's going to make it uh, obvious that they're not of a high <laughs> caliber to not meet. Um, but also, this no is no one gets an introduction
0: in- on this show anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 we got to be fair. Um, this is someone who, I guess, he's like kind of my Stephen King. Where like I've always known his name, but I don't know that I've ever really seen him in anything. You know, I haven't seen the Star Wars prequels. I you're, know he's you're better off those movies. Yeah, he's great um, in
0: those, but not much else is great about those.
1: Yeah, like I always, in the last few years, when I've started kind of paying attention and hearing his name, I either get him confused with one Connor mcgregor that ufc fighter guy <laughs> okay. and and two james mcavoy for some reason they don't look and that now, similar no i know but it's like i guess they just have kind of similar names and they're both like from like across the ocean and they just they get mixed up in my head like the same way simple plan and blink 182 and some 41 did when i was a child i just have a mixed up um so this was my introduction to ewan mcgregor and right from the beginning i thought this guy was so so good this dude felt like whomever i was picturing when i read the book and he just he really felt like someone who was struggling with where he is in life because of events from his past and and i'll give you one specific moment that i think articulates this um there's one particular scene that uh ewan mcgregor does in his performance that i think really just exemplifies uh the heart that he puts into this character and how well he's he's uh illustrating all the weight of danny and all the backstory and like monologuing that is likely in the book that deepens the character it's not going to be in here because it's a two and a half hour movie but when you have little moments like this it communicates all that backstory without actually saying it so it's it's early on in the movie when he's come into town and he's talking with, um, it might be Bruce Greenwood's character, it might be Billy, I don't remember exactly, but he tells him that it's not, um, I think, he says it's not what we believe that makes us better people, it's not what we think. He says our actions make us better people. Yeah, he says that to Billy. Right, and right after he says that, he makes this face, he kind of squints and narrows his eyes, and it felt to me like what he had said surprised him like he's someone who who's meant for great things and has such a pure heart but he's been pushing against it for all of his adult life because of the stuff that happened to him at the overlook and the life that he's had with his father and mother since and he's someone who he's been abusing himself since that happened um but the the heart of who he is is still it's still in there and it surprises him whenever this sort of uh this sort of wiseness that he has shows and that was early in the movie and I loved watching this character get more confident as the movie went on and I loved watching him come into his own and I think he does that through the relationship that he has with Abra and Abra as an actress I thought she was incredible too. I thought she was. Uh, she illustrated um, uh, the character's precociousness and naivete, while also being, you know, curious and and wise behind her beyond her years. But she's still a kid. And my favorite scene of hers was when Dan takes over her body. When Dan yeah. shines into her and is talking to. Uh, the crow from the backseat of the car that was probably the most affecting um, piece of acting in the movie for me that genuinely felt like there was some freaky friday shit going on where like ewan mcgregor had gotten inside her brain and they had like dubbed over his lines but also she had read them in her voice and they had, like, done some CG manipulation in order to... Because I just can't imagine that a girl of her age is able to totally understand what is happening here and is able to embody the maturity and the, all the weight that... Ewan McGregor has been has been exemplifying throughout the entire movie, and she the confidence
0: does, too, because he knows that he's right. So by extension, yeah. she acts as though she knows that she's right. <laughs> like exactly, and she does all of that in one
1: minute. She takes everything that I was impressed um, by in Danny throughout the whole movie, and she does it all in one minute. And I thought it was absolutely incredible and so both those characters i i really really loved what they were doing and i can't imagine them being any better really what did you think of them
0: i agree with a lot of what you said i think yeah the biggest thing with uh abra and kylie curran in that performance is that she's able to carry i guess precociousness is good but also just like the abject confidence of a teenager that has just learned that they're like one of the most powerful people in the world um yeah i remember i remember that age wow like she carries that with like the right level of both confidence and like self-righteousness of like oh well now that i can do these things i have to do these things because she gets so attached to like helping out jacob tremblay and all that um and you genuinely feel like that she feels very deeply about this but she's also able to play the uncertainty of it and like the fear of it in a way that connects just as well. So it never feels like she's playing it overconfidently to the point where you don't buy concern from the character. Right. But you never don't believe the bravado either. She does a lot with that. And it's wild that this is a feature debut performance because this feels like a very seasoned actor getting to do their craft. Honestly, honestly, so i mean like nothing but praise really pretty much across the board um a scene in particular that i think of is pretty good because she's not even on screen <laughs> um but she so i don't know what the true not cult does like i don't think they don't have the shining but they have some other thing that lets them do shining style psychic power shit i guess um you might know is it the shining or is it something else um, if you don't remember, it's you, fine. Yeah, no, you're talking about this now, and I'm
1: because I can't remember it. I think I'm right there with you. Uh, I don't think it is explicitly The Shining. Um, they're just uh, yeah, these supernatural creatures who are able to, right, notice when people have it, and they were once human, right? Which is is the hook. So I, I don't, I don't really know where that where that came
0: from. Cool. If it's in the book, I apologize, but yeah, it's fine. But so. Abra is so powerful that she is able to get inside the head of Rose, the hat, which is new because Rose is used to that being the other way around. And, uh, Oh no, wait, when she's in the grocery store, who's in whose head? Uh, Abra goes into, into Rose's, Rose's head, right? Head. Yeah. Cause it's like filing cabinets and the big like thing. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. So, um, this sequence is great because it exemplifies so many things about this movie that are good. <laughs> um, The first is, and this is something, again, that I think the movie loses a little bit near the end, which is that it never gets over the top, but the movie knows exactly how to illustrate to you how genuinely powerful the things going on are. Um, Which is because, so they're having a bit of like a snarky kind of back and forth with each other. They have a good rapport. But there is a point where um, I believe what happens is Rose tries to do the same to Abra and Abra basically just yells and we're looking at a reflection in glass of Rose's face in a grocery store she's like shopping with a cart and everything just shatters and she's just sent flying down the aisle in this store and so the two things for me is that so much is carried in Abra's voice and not her face which is great like I think that's a hard thing to do and um it gives you a sense of how genuinely like, strong of forces you're dealing with without having to feel totally over the top because you've already suspensioned of disbelief your way into saying The Shining exists. So this is a really great way of illustrating that. And I think it's a great way of illustrating it visually that doesn't feel overblown. And um, I think that's also true of like rose gets her hand caught in a filing cabinet oh inside of her mind i yep. think and abra's keeping it slammed shut and she tries pulling her hand out and it like rips the skin off oh dude
1: i was so so glad to see that in gerald's game there's a very similar Scene of degloving, and it's probably the most affecting. You using the uh, word made it so much worse. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably the most affecting, like, body horror scene I've ever seen in my life in the way that it made me recoil in Gerald's game, I mean. And that's a Netflix movie. So I just felt (laughs) so much joy, but also, you know, I was jumping out of my skin. But the fact that Mike Flanagan was like, all right, yeah, Mike Flanagan was like, all right, I did this for a Netflix movie that however many people saw but this is a sequel to the shining there's going to be people in a theater i need to put this on a big screen and he did a similar effect and i thought it was so so good especially for that moment because we're seeing rose you know really really hurting and she hasn't experienced this before so it has to be something that is that is really wicked and visceral to communicate how much abra is is uh taking advantage of her here
0: yeah because we see so many examples of the power that rose wields um in manipulating people and controlling people and um getting what she wants basically um because their whole thing is that they're able to keep this like thing that they feed off of in canisters so they have to harvest it out of people and they can do that or they can turn people which is basically just make them one of their own which is what they do to andy and um Mm -hmm. you always feel like rose is such an imposing force and then you see examples of it in one of the most visually striking things i've seen in i don't know how long you probably know what i'm talking about Um, oh yeah i was waiting for us to get to it (laughs) which is so um rose can basically do force projection uh like luke skywalker and what she does is she's trying to find where abra is So she can sense Abra's powers and projects herself to try to get a visual on like where she lives and the visual that we get to show Rose moving through time and space is flight in space like above the clouds looking down and that could be a really boring shot right it can either it could look like just like a boring superhero Superman shot whatever but instead of (laughs) shooting it so she is moving left to right horizontally (laughs) across the screen or from like there's portions of this shot that are from like behind her head looking down but the thing that looks crazy is that it's shot vertically so it looks like she's standing and there's like a divide a division in the frame of clouds and i i almost don't know how to articulate it but the way it looks is so mesmerizing. There's like a black and blueness and really white shining stars in this cloud and it gets juxtaposed with like the yellowness of light and electricity on the ground. It's really fast moving. Like you get a sense of speed. It's it's, it's, it's insane. It's a remarkable achievement, honestly. Absolutely. And that was the first sign to me
1: um, besides maybe the... Uh, the overlook sequences and the Wendy sequences at the beginning, it was the first sign to me that that this movie was going to be able to do a lot of the stuff that Kubrick did. And it was going to be able to be in line with that movie. Because on top of just doing the really, you know, on-earth human stuff, emotions and all that lovey-dovey stuff really well, <laughs> this movie was also able to communicate the abstract Um, elements of the story in a really evocative clever yeah moving way so we see that when rose is is um in the sky and we see that when the members of the true knot are dying in what they call cycling there that's also (laughs) heroic. yeah and so what happens there it's it's the most um the most captivating image from the book for me—the the way Stephen King described this—he described it in a way that I could I could barely even picture, but I understood that it was something that would only happen to. Supernatural beings, and I understood. Okay, this is what happens when things that are not human die. I under—I I get that this is what it would be, but I still couldn't quite picture it because it just seemed so abstract and surreal. And then I saw it here on film, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen." Their skin is is like deflating, and you can see their bones and their eyes are bugging in and out and in and out. And I thought that was just so so powerful and then you know the filing cabinets as a way to depict memories and and the boxes where in the maze. Danny has has been storing these uh the ghosts from the overlook in his mind and the fact that they're being placed in the maze from the overlook hotel stuff like that it was just i th- i thought it was the best possible way to depict these things and i was so impressed that Mike Flanagan was able to Chuggle all all these all these balls at once and and you know manage to not fumble
0: yeah and it's a bummer because I feel like there's so much that we're glossing over too in trying to like get to everything because there's just so much going on that I think is really exciting I guess though in the interest of time because we've been talking for a while let's get to the finale? Unless there's something from earlier in the movie you really think we should talk about that we haven't.
1: Nah, man. Let's, let's go right into the finale.
0: The only thing I want to say before the finale is there's a couple different moments in this movie where the camera spins or tilts. Um, It's like the moment in the trailer, which I watched later, um, where even McGregor like slides down the floor, and it's when he hits the wall is when he goes into Abra. Um, oh, yeah. But the camera tilts to follow him fall, so it feels like he's not being pushed by a force, but it's like the room physically tilted. Um, that happens earlier in the movie too, with Abra up against a window. It's great, every time. Great visual conveyance of that. So in the finale, uh, Dan... I keep cycling between Danny and Dan. I don't know which one I should be using, because, like, I don't... He'd, like, you don't look at Ewan McGregor and go, that's a Danny, for sure. <laughs>
1: Mr. Torrance. Mr. You guys aren't friends. You don't want to impose. Old Man
0: Torrance. Uh, <laughs> Dan the Man. Uh, Dan the Shining Torrance. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so they recognize that. They think that if the Overlook Hotel feeds on The Shining then it may also feed on whatever Rose the hat has, and it may want it more. So what happens with that is they have a plan to drive over to Colorado to go to the Overlook hotel. And, um, there's a great shot on their transit where they recreate some shots from the opening credits of the shining, which I thought was fun. And they go in and they wake it back up. Basically. He says, I got to go in and wake it up and it'll recognize that we're here. And, uh, you know he's walking down hallways and it's lighting things up but like he's not turning them on but like lights light up as he's walking and the building sort of recognizes that he's here and um in doing so a lot of the things that we see in the shining that are just sort of hallucinations for jack and danny return and um you get you know an image of the twins again and you get the guy who says it's a great party or whatever the fuck and um all of that and uh They concoct a plan, basically, to use Abra as bait. And then Dan will be able to sort of try to go toe-to-toe with Rose, which happens in the room where Jack Torrance writes on his typewriter, which has that staircase. There's a big confrontation, basically, between Abra and Dan and Rose and uh, also just the forces that exist in the hotel. And I was just curious what you thought about this finale because I have sort of specific gripes with some of it, but basically from when they got there to the end, I'm curious about how you felt about how things sort of wrap.
1: I, this, this is where I thought the movie um, took the biggest leap and I thought this was the biggest risk because um Whereas I was so impressed with what came before it just because they were so faithfully adapting the book. This is when it really decides to wrestle with what Kubrick did with the movie while right. also trying to keep up with uh, the book and the story that it's established for itself. So um, when I realized that that's what the movie was doing and I and I realized this was happening when um, Billy died and when snake bite andy and the crow died because um those characters make it to the overlook hotel in the oh, book
0: that would be a um, very different movie
1: <laughs> and and in the book the overlook isn't still standing the way it is in the movie they sort of just have this battle on a snowy ground where the overlook used to stand okay so in the film um we still have the overlook standing because we're going to again reuse um not reuse but we're, we're going to use uh the imagery from the first film and and sort of deal with all those things much more directly and i thought this movie did it in a way that i didn't know i wanted i, I didn't know that i wanted this movie to um also sequelized The Shining and I I didn't know that I wanted it to make amends with all that imagery from the first film and and make it apply to this story as well. But as it was happening, you know, when we have the blood coming out of the elevators and Rose looks at it with like this amazed wonder in her eyes, um, you know, that made me feel like, okay, this character is true evil and the overlook is also true evil. It reminded me of that. And it, and it's solidified um, Stephen King's point that places can be evil as well as people, because that's something that's in the book, but we don't have Rose the hat interacting so directly with the overlook in the book. And so um, I thought that this sequence um, furthered her story. And I also thought that having Dan, talk to um uh his dad in the basement and then having dan mimic a lot of his dad's actions climbing the staircase with the axe i thought it was a great representation of um danny's biggest fears that he was going to father follow in his father's footsteps and that which we hear about earlier
0: in the movie too
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that he was never going to make it away from the Overlook, in a sense. And I thought illustrating these things through such clear um, reenactments and callbacks was really, really smart. And I thought that it made the climax feel even bigger than it does in the book and even more important. And um, I, I I thought that it was really, uh, really powerful, and I I really dug it. What about you? What did you think? Uh, I
0: I agree with a lot. I think the thing I want to hone in on that I like a lot, that I'll be curious to see if other people like, is the conversation that he has with his dad, because I could see a lot of people thinking, especially if they're coming from the movie and not the book, that it might be a little bit much for them to have like a full-on interaction and it might be a bit much in terms of solidifying a bit of the mystery from the end of the first movie which is like why is he in this picture from like the 20s ooh and then it's like oh okay well his spirits just still here and he's doing okay great um, I like the conversation that they have because I like the content of the conversation that they have I think and I like that in his mind essentially because I feel like that's informing the kind of things that you see in the overall hotel. The embodiment of his dad is one that's trying to goad him into doing his, committing to his vices or doing his worst behaviors. And in this case, it's trying to get him to drink and to latch on to that sort of emotional track and let things be angry and let things, you know, get unhinged. But I don't mind having there be an explicit conversation that sort of set straight that Dan has grown and been able to get past this and take on um, a protective Dick Halloran style figure for Abra and sort of push past the things that he was working through previously in his life and the trauma that he had as a kid. I also don't mind direct imagery callbacks because I feel like for everybody that's going to roll their eyes at like the blood imagery, there's going to be a lot of people who, if it weren't there, they'd be kind of pissed They'd be like, come on, man, how did you not, how did you not do that? My biggest complaint with the end, I have two big kind of problems. Well, one of them's small. One of them's bigger. One of them is that it feels like the allusions to the original movie get a little bit much for me. The one that sticks out the most. And it's funny because you said that him walking up the stairs with the ax was emblematic of Jack And I'm actually thinking of a different moment where he's walking backwards up the steps and Rose is walking towards him. That's reminiscent of Wendy with the bat. And it was, it it might be because I had watched The Shining earlier that day. I freely admit that, but I was like, okay, I know. I've seen The Shining. Like, it felt like a very direct callback. I also do think that the fact that Dan gets possessed and then literally walks around in an almost identical outfit with a limp and an ax was a bit much because you know, the conversation kind of exemplifies that his dad is the embodiment of the things he's trying not to do. But then to literally just become the embodiment of the things he's trying not to do is a bit hammy. I think I can see past a lot of that. My biggest complaint is it kind of starts to feel less like, the Shining and whatever Rose does as like psychic powers is um, a confusing burden and also almost more like it's a superpower and it feels a bit like a superhero fight <laughs> at parts and that bothers me when it becomes a bit more like we're just doing Shining stuff to each other. Does that make sense? Like yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Just, what, there's just uh... you. I'm trying to. I'm like I'm looking at my notes and I'm trying to remember. Because that's the feeling I was getting as I was watching it, was that it felt like it was going a bit too over the top, but I don't know if I wrote down the ideal, like, use case example for me to have. I mean, we do get the, uh, you and me are the same villain monologue, (laughs) which is a bit hokey, uh, that Rose gives to Abra in The Maze, I think, but... Yeah, I'm sorry to not be able to back this point up better, but I, I remember getting a feeling where I felt like it was getting a bit much in terms of it being like combative or like offensive, um, mm. but obviously not so much that I can't get around that because I don't remember it as thoroughly as the stuff that I liked. And um, I don't mind uh, the Overlook Hotel being explained in a way that it's not in the shining for all the reasons you described as how it leans into something the book is trying to accomplish. And I think, you know, their ultimate success and Dan sacrificing himself, but in the process, taking on that Halloran figure type for Abra who can appear because of the shining and sort of be a guiding figure for whoever might be like that. It's a bit corny because it's a bit, maybe it's a bit sentimental or tying a bow on it and that it's the exact same as the thing that we see earlier i think it's a perfectly reasonable way to wrap that up i'll be really curious to see well actually before i say anything i want to ask how you feel about how it literally ends like how that being the ending was for you it took me a
1: while to figure out how i liked the ending because the ending also differs pretty greatly from the book um and so when it differs from the book um, I'm not, I'm not questioning how I feel about it because it's different um, and because like it's unfamiliar to me. I'm just questioning why it's different because I have to wonder why the change has been made. You know, why weren't they able to end the story the way one author felt it should end um, and, and it wasn't immediately obvious to me because um, in the book, Dan lives and he and Abra um, are together again you know a couple of years later when Abra is becoming a teenager they have another conversation about how they can both still shine and how he's carrying on working at the hospice and and just helping people into the other life and uh, and he's found solace in that and I liked that ending of the book and here we have, Dan dying, and we have Abra going into the bathroom. Yeah, with yeah, that's the, right. the rotting corpse, right? It's so weird. And it, it is weird, and and so I I had to wonder about it, and while I'm still not entirely sure about what it all means, um, I understand it to be ending the way the Shining film. Should have ended in in maybe the the author's mind, and by author I mean either Stephen King or Mike Flanagan, because the ending of this film is sort of more in line with the ending of The Shining, the novel, where Dan uh, Dan sacrificing himself here is very reflective of Jack dying with the Overlook Hotel at the end of the novel in a last-ditch effort to save the people he loves despite being overcome by uh, by the influence that the hotel has on him. And at the end of the book, we have Dan... At the end of The Shining, we have Dan still having the shine and needing to live with himself now that his father figure and is gone and and he has these sort of ghosts of the past all around him. And so once I made that connection that the film is is ending in a similar way to the book did it it, it made it feel a bit more clear to me, but I'm still not entirely sure where that leaves us with Abra because we got a sequel to the Shining uh, 30 years later, that sort of made sense of Danny's story. So now, am I to assume that Abra is going to have a similar journey to Danny that she's going to have a really rough life for the next 30 years until she finds a kid that she can be a Halloran to? And can I take a stab?
0: Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I know how I kind of feel about it, or at least the, the impression that I got, and what I think would make it distinct from that and not necessarily needing anything else is um, I think that one of the things that differentiates it quite a bit in how Abra would feel about the everything is that obviously there was a lot of like very negative consequences and a lot of people got hurt that didn't need to and a lot of people died that didn't need to and that would be difficult for anybody. But they were ultimately able to take down an outside evil force which is not the same thing that would leave Dan with guilt if it's like he knows that his father did something sacrificial. If we're taking the book track and having conflicting feelings about that, they're able to sort of relish in the fact that they did something that is collectively positive And that she, along the way, got an appreciation and understanding for the extent of her ability and how to use it. I also think that if you're using that as a template for how to understand that final shot, her going by herself to confront that figure in the bathroom, I think is just uh, reflective of somebody who has grown to understand their position and get comfort in it and also have the confidence to handle themselves and understand the extent of themselves and how they need to navigate that. And then Dan gets to persist as like a shining figure to guide that but because abra's been through so much and achieved like a net positive um that she'll be more equipped to navigate those emotions because they aren't as downtrodden with a lack of closure about how you feel about something Mm -hmm. that's the best i can assume now anyway that's how i felt about it after seeing it
1: yeah that makes sense that feels good to me
0: yeah, and uh I'm getting help here having a bit of uh the input about the endings of the book is sort of helping me formulate that idea kind of as I think about it. But yeah. um yeah, we really liked this movie, huh? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. Oh, <laughs> and um, the music's real good. <laughs> oh yeah. I I, yeah. I hate to gloss over that. Also the movie the music shows a great deal of restraint. Because it uses those opening notes, right? Because, of course, it does. Because they're too good, and how could you not? Um, From The Shining, like the... Like, it uses that, and then Mm -hmm. stops using it. And it feels appropriate, but it never feels like it's just aping what The Shining sounds like. And it's able to amplify how atmospheric this movie is able to feel in its best moments without overstepping its bounds which i think is true of the whole thing like we've said it's able to check a lot of boxes without overstepping the bounds of any of the other boxes like it doesn't lean too much into kubrick and it doesn't lean too much into king and it doesn't lean too much into the books and it doesn't lean too much into the movies and um it's a really unique example of it's like mike flanagan was like spinning plates on a bunch of different sticks and he just managed to not really drop any of them Mm-hmm. it's really impressive
1: yeah yeah that's uh that's really what it comes down to I was just so so impressed with this movie I loved it but I was also really impressed with it and that's kind of where I started with The Shining the first time I saw The Shining I was more impressed with it than anything and then upon multiple watches uh, I really grew to love it so I can only imagine liking this movie more and more as time goes on and I'm, I'm really excited to you a double feature similar to how you did um, and see them back to back once, once this one comes out on home video, I'm I'm just so glad that this movie exists. And, um, you know, after like it chapter two came out, I I just had this nagging feeling that, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to have to wait 20 years to get another version (laughs) of this story, you know, because this isn't, this isn't quite, uh, this didn't scratch
0: the itch for me that I wanted it to. Well, whereas, you know, to that point you might, because this movie is not doing well like it's not making money um it's one of a few recent well I guess it's weird because this is kind of a franchise movie um in a sense but it's not doing well at the box office so hopefully it doesn't deter people from making this kind of thing or letting a director take a swing like this but it'll be hard to say
1: yeah yeah it's true it's it's a shame you know that um I, I read that they were initially planning a sequel to this movie um, and that Mike Flanagan had already written a sequel script that goes into the uh, backstory of Dick Halloran, and that might not happen now, um, and oh. I'm okay with that. I yeah, just, I don't know I if just, I want I, that, but... <laughs> yeah, I just I just hope that this isn't, uh, that you know, Mike Flanagan doesn't have a tougher time getting theatrical work. He's he's done a lot of work for Netflix, and, and I hope that, uh, studios are still able to understand that that this movie really did something special for at least for me and so hopefully for a lot of people and i'm so glad that that this is the version of this book and of this story that we got because you know while i'm going to be waiting a little while to get another crack at it and and hopefully have that book fulfilled in a way that that works for me um i i don't need this movie to be rebooted ever again in my life you know i'm uh, i'm satisfied with this whole version we got the shining and then dr sleep right afterward i kind of think it's a it is a perfect pairing
0: and the last thing i want to say is it's funny that you say like do a double feature because i guess i did do a double feature but they feel really distinct when you watch it in enough of a way that it didn't feel like i did a double feature does that make sense like they felt yeah. like two unique viewing experiences. That might be because they were in two different places, but who knows? Um, anyway, we've been talking for over 100 minutes. So with that, we should probably call this one. We're, we're going to draw curtains here in a theater. Remember, we're in a theater. This movie's in theater, so we're in a theater. Do it in your mind. Imagine us there. And thank you once again. What, the, what was that? Thank you once again for listening to another episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet. On Twitter at TheyMadeAnother, Another, all one word. On Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public. Um, and probably like if you pull a random cassette out of your basement, our podcast will actually be on it now. Cause we're on everything, baby. And you can find us there as they made another one. You can reach okay. us via email at TMAO at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, or a 500 page words document that says nothing but all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Liam, where can people find you? That was a good one. Thank you. You guys
1: can find my film writing alter ego Graham the Haunted Marshmallow on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow.
0: And you can catch me on Twitter at Mr. Corey Price, where I am once again tweeting about the trailer for cats. And on that note, we will catch you here next week for more. They made another one.